Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to welcome back as one of our very special guests, Dr. Michael Carpin. Dr. Carpin, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be here, Arch. It's well, been a while. I'm, I'm glad it, to be back. Yes, it's been a while, and thank you for coming back. And in case someone has not listened to earlier programs, would you share a little bit of your educational and experimental background before we begin into our fascinating topic? Well, I'm currently a very proud member of the Social Studies Department at Marple Newtown High School, where I was a colleague with our esteemed host for many, many years. But prior to that, I did four wonderful years in the History Department at Gettysburg College as an undergrad. They had a little battle there at one point a master's degree at Johns Hopkins University, and then finished my grad program at the University of Pennsylvania. And what topics are you teaching currently at Marple Newtown High School? What, what do I teach at Marple? Although it always changes. I uh, <laughs> teach mostly government and economics, but also a, an elective class on the court system in the United States, and also one of our elective courses on the presidency, which I've never had before. But looking forward to getting into this year, even though, I don't know, there's there's really not anything going on with that. So I'm going to have to, uh, I, I, mean, I don't know, I'm going to have to reach deep for some inspiration. Yeah. No, of course, I'm kidding. It's a fascinating time to be teaching the presidency right now. And to our listeners, Dr. Carpin, for many years that I was teaching with him, taught different sections of ninth graders. And I'm happy to say that he maintained his sanity and has gotten through it. And he's a better man because of it. <laughs> you know, it, it's much better than teaching middle school, I guess. I don't know. That's, that's, the, that's the one part I could never do. I have more respect to middle school teachers. That's the one job I couldn't do. Yeah, God bless them. So, listeners, our topic today is it's a little change of pace, but it's something that's very dear to both Dr. Carpenter's heart and myself, and we're going to be talking about some historical movies over the past several years, and one that he believes is probably the worst, and then uh, another one he believes is the best historical and made movie. So, Dr. Carpin, you can please start right in and share with our listeners the one that you believe is the worst historical movie out of Hollywood. Sure. And thanks for taking on this topic, Arch. I know this is a little different from what we've done before. I know one of those nice days we were out playing golf, we were kicking around some different topics and talking about some things. And this was something a little different that kind of crossed my mind. And so I, you know, I thought about as a teacher, you know, what are some of the things that I would, especially social studies teachers were prone to show a lot of stuff from time to time and what's really good and what shouldn't we touch with a 10 foot pole. And so as I thought about this topic, I thought about what would be a film resource. And by, I don't mean like a documentary. I don't mean, I mean a major Hollywood production. What would I use in my classroom that if I didn't use it, I feel like I would be depriving my students of some really profound experience. And on the other hand, what's a movie that I would be committing crimes against history <laughs> if I showed it to students as an educational resource? Because in our field, we talk about crimes against history, something so terrible, so over the top, so inaccurate that we're almost doing a disservice to our students by showing that to them. So we're going to start with the worst. We're going to start with the ridiculous, and then we're going to go to the sublime. We're going to start with, in my opinion, and I also think in your opinion as well, one of, hands down, the worst. If you see this movie in your cable guide as you're scanning around, just skip over it. 
<laughs> uh, go to C-SPAN, go to Comedy Central, see what's on ESPN. I don't know. This movie, to learn about American history, is to be avoided at all costs. And I think, in part, my adverse reaction to this film is a personal anecdote. So I'll take you back to the summer of 2000 when this movie came out. This movie was my reward for that afternoon, being a good boy and going to the dentist's and finally giving in and having a root canal done oh. that I had that I had put off. And my companion at the time, who when I emerged from the dentist's office with, you know, the side of my face in, in a great amount of discomfort, she said to me, okay, I guess we can go see that movie you really want to go see. She's not a historical person by any stretch of the imagination. And so, very happily, I got into my car, we went to the movies, and we went to see, ta-da, the Patriot, starring uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, see, your your reaction is right there. Like, like you know, I was so I had a mouthful of Novocaine that was kind of starting and beginning to wear off at that point. I was so excited to see this movie, and then two and a half hours later, I walked out and said to myself, "That is one of the worst things I have ever seen in my life." And any, if you're out there. Any social studies teacher who is showing this movie, Arch and I will personally come to you and we will stage an intervention to prevent <laughs> you, to prevent you from ever showing this movie and polluting the minds of young history students with this absolute piece of claptrap under the guise of a historical film. Okay, so. Well, let me, let me if, if I may. I'll, 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 I'll let you jump in. So, so, so the root canal was much more of a highlight than the Patriots. I was ready to go back. I was ready to <laughs> say, hey, uh, you know, what are what are some other teeth we can work on? Because I, you know, it just. I mean, we'll we'll go through this, but there are parts where if the Novocaine had allowed my jaw to to drop to the floor, I think it would have, um, it would have happened. Now, at the same time, and I'm I'm going to be intellectually honest here. We have to be fair. It is we have to be slightly sympathetic to the plight of the Hollywood filmmaker and the Hollywood screenwriter. They're trying to make money. They're trying to make something that has broad appeal. They're trying to take very complex events and boil them down into a two, two and a half hour script, something along those lines. Sometimes you condense characters. Sometimes you tweak the historical fact a little bit in order to move plot. We could do a whole other episode on the novel, The Killer Angels. We see this in fiction as well, where, you know, all that. However, that understanding only goes so far, because even with that in mind, there are some significant crimes against history here that come out of this movie. And as you share the inaccuracies that you see in the movie, a curiosity question, and then please get right into what you saw and why you disliked it, is for our listeners, how do you use a film in your class as far as the educational value is concerned? Um, you know, I want something that – my first rule of thumb is that it's a, it's a primary source. It's a firsthand source for a time period. I once had a conversation with this about David Eisenhower, grandson of President Eisenhower, and he said that in many ways that filmmakers are the first historians, which I thought was a, a really interesting way to look at it. And in fact, when we get to my best film, um, you'll see how it fits in here. 
So I try to show, for example, I've, I've shown the original version of All Quiet on the Western Front. If you want to understand the pacifism that we had in the United States between the world wars, I think that was an interesting insight. I love the 1961 version of The Manchurian Candidate. That was almost my best movie, but not quite, because I think it really, if you want to understand that paranoia of the Cold War and, and where we were and what we were thinking and what we were seeing, I think it's a great resource in that regard. And just like the, the Patriot just does none of this. Like it's not even a very good secondary source. It's not even a, it's a starting point where you can begin to explore. Like it's just, you know, it, it, it looks great. Again, I have to be fair here on the surface. It looks great. Apparently the writer who later I found out was responsible for also responsible for Independence Day, which also should have been assigned. And apparently they consulted with the Smithsonian in terms of the uniforms and the sets and the props. And there's, you know, there's some interesting things. I think the battle scenes are okay. I don't know how you feel about them. The battle scenes are not bad in terms of the tactics. I like how some of the ordnance behaves with like how the cannonballs bounce around and, and different types of things like that. I think there's some interesting stuff there. And you can see where they did a little bit of homework there. But boy, but then it, it tries to talk and it just, uh, you know, what, what comes out is just, is just, is just bad. Well, Dr. Carpen, I have now taken my medicine to calm my blood pressure back down. <laughs> So if you'd share with our listeners, please, about the movie itself and the major problems in it, and then please share with our listeners actually what took place. Sure. So I, I thought about this when we started to talk about this topic, and I focused in on this movie, and I really had to sit back and think for a while, like, you know, how – it's much like the Declaration of Independence. It's a, it's a long list of grievances. It's a, it's a long list of complaints. And so how – how can I boil this long list of grievances down into a couple of parts that we can get in in 26 minutes? So I had to think about this for a while. And so I have two major areas of concern here that I'm going to cover here. All right. So the first is a little more general. And then the second, you know, again, as from my perspective, uh, our perspective as, as historians and, and people who teach history and, and stuff that you just don't do in history, I, you know, that's where we'll get into the second concern. All right. First major broad problem I have with this film is that I think it does a total hack job, <laughs> a total disservice on one of you know what I would consider, and frankly, I don't know as much about this as I do other aspects of it, uh, what I think is one of the most fascinating and underrated dynamics of the entire American Revolution. And that is the war in the South. Yes, yes. I, you yes. know, I you, you know I don't know to what extent you've had you've had episodes about this. You are far more an authority on the nuts and bolts of the American Revolution. I am, and I, I know you've done field studies and, and tours in the South and things like that. It is a fascinating and very underrated and very underexplored theater of battle in the whole scope of the American Revolution. And I mean, it, it almost deserves a whole nother episode on your show. Um, an interesting place to start. If you were going to ask this question to your audience, name the state with the most revolutionary war battlefields. Well, Dr. Carpen, I, I asked a lot of people that question. Uh -huh. and, and the majority of answer that I get is either New York or Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> And the correct answer is 
Carolina. South Carolina. South Carolina. South Carolina with, with over 200, 200 battlefields wow. from the American Revolution in the very – and you think about it. We're talking about kind of a small state right there. There is so much action in the South. I mean, you know, look where the American Revolution ends up at Yorktown in very mm-hmm. southern Virginia. You know, there's there's a reason for that. The South was always a major part, and you know all this, the, the South was a major part of the British strategy for trying to bring the American colonies under control. They thought that there were far more numbers of loyalists in the South and they thought that they could get the South under control and then focus on those rabble rousers in the mid-Atlantic region and, and New England. And it almost – I think that's another underappreciated aspect, how close it comes to coming to fruition yeah, before yes. the poor British management turns it in the other direction. Uh, you know, there's almost – I mean, all wars are terrible. The fighting of the American Revolution is awful. You know, the, the fighting in the South takes on a deeper level of savagery, and it really doesn't go well for the American cause for a really, 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 really long time. I mean, if we go through like just the – and I just had some, some notes here, just like the rough, the rough scope of it. Savannah falls in 1778. Charleston falls in 1780, which, again, intellectual honesty is covered in the Patriot. They do bring that up, so at least they got that right, at least – Rambo didn't come in and you know machine gun all the British and and save the day. Fourteen thousand British soldiers. Benjamin Lincoln, who a name some of our students of American history might know how you know how he comes up at the Battle of Yorktown. He surrenders the entire Southern army, and so basically what you have is no American army, no organized Continental army in the South, and you have basically these local militias trying to hold things over. And and I wrote it down here, led by, I think, some of the, the greatest collection of nicknames in American history are the American forces in the South. Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock, Andrew Pickens, the Wizard Al, and most famously, Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, who is a name that might be familiar to, to some of our listeners. Uh, more on those guys later. And I think what, what what's bringing this back to the movie I think the movie gets into South Carolina. It gets into this region in the 1780s, and it's a straightforward good guys, bad guys. Here's the bad, evil British. Here's the humble, loyal patriots. And these are the two sides in this battle that's going back and forth. And as you know, the Revolutionary War in the South is as close to civil war as you can get. Yes. Because you have patriots and you have loyalists. If we want, I mean, we really don't have the time to go battle by battle because we're we're talking about this terrible movie here. But I, you know, a case in point is I think that the Battle of Kings Mountain in October of 1780. You've got 900 patriots. You've got 1,100 loyalist militia. The only British regular on the field is Patrick Ferguson, who's the mm-hmm. commander of the loyalist militia, who's killed during the battle. Ferguson gets killed. The Loyalists are routed. When they try to surrender, they're they're killed by the Patriot troops. The Patriot troops are trying to get revenge for an act by this guy named Bannister Tarleton. More on him later. That that might have happened at a previous battle. And so you see so much of this in the South. It is such a complex struggle and one that really, if not for the Battle of the Cowpens, uh, for the Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, you know, really was not going the American way for a really long time. So in general, the Patriot just gets the American Revolution in the South so wrong. 
And I just think there's so many more. You know, couldn't the screenwriters have thrown in some loyalists? You know, couldn't they have done that? Like, could I? You know, I just maybe they couldn't have. I don't know. It just would have confused movie audiences. I'm I'm not sure. So that's my first major problem with this film. All right, now, and I had to think about how I wanted to phrase this for my my second major problem. So I boil this down to what I would call a toxic combination of fictional events and fictional characters under the guise of real people. You know, again, like I said in the beginning of the show, you have to create composites. We see this all the time. You have to take four people and you have to make them one person. You do that in movies from time to time. I get that. That's okay. It's worked successfully in some ways. And there's lots of characters in The Patriot. There's lots of people that I could focus on. I was thinking about the French guy, and they named him Villeneuve, and all I could think of were the father and son French-Canadian Formula One drivers and, <laughs> and, and whatever. Okay. So there's lots of characters. But I'm going to focus on two here that I think are the embodiment of why you learn no American history from this film. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. What's, what's one of the characters you think I'm talking about? Well, I know that the... I was going to say it's uh, it's Francis Marion played by Mel Gibson. All right. Well, he he's going to be he's going to be our second because I think there's extraordinarily problematic issues on a lot of levels with the with the Mel Gibson character. But who else? I would also then guess from the British perspective, a Bannister Tarleton. Correct. Okay. So Bannister Tarleton, but he's not named Bannister Tarleton. He is named. I had to look it up because, again, I've, you know, a lot of years of therapy have have tried to get this movie <laughs> out of my consciousness, and so I had to like, you know, I, I, I regrettably went back into some information and tried to remember the names of some of these characters. He is British Colonel William Tavington. Huh. If you remember that, because again, you know, you nice. shouldn't have seen this movie, but only once. And so you might not you might not remember <laughs> his name. And, you know, what's what's the problem I have with this guy? OK, so William Tavington is based on the very real Bannister Tarleton, who was this British Dragoon commander. And I, I shouldn't be so hard on a Liverpool guy, but I'm going to be really hard on a Liverpool guy here. You know, like this character, it's like the laziness of Hollywood films with British guys that it's either I think of like Cornwallis in this movie where it's there, there, there was a Monty Python skit once called the upper class twit of the year that they did. And it, it's like British characters are like, are like two ways. There are these doofy upper class guys with really great wigs and great clothes, but you know, they don't know what day of the week it is mm -hmm. um, because they're just so ensconced in their superiority. They can't see anything else. So you get like the really doofy British guys, or you get the extraordinarily evil, bloodthirsty, cold-hearted British guy, like, I don't know, like the guy from Die Hard or the, the guy who ran the art gallery in Beverly Hills Cop. Like anybody with a British accent is, is evil. And so Tavington is the second one here. And he, in the movie, does a lot of really terrible stuff. He does a lot of really terrible stuff. He shoots children. He takes everybody from the town and puts them into the church and then locks the doors of the church and sets the church on fire. He uh, just all of these one atrocity after another. Now, 
you know this, Arch, were there plenty of atrocities on both, what we would consider yes. atrocities today on both sides during the American Revolution? Without a doubt, there was, yes. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I read last summer the first volume in the um, what I'm sure will be a wonderful trilogy, uh, Rick Atkinson's trilogy yes. of the American Revolution, the first, The British Are Coming. Right. And he talked about after the Battle of Concord, when the residents of Concord went through the wounded British soldiers with clubs and finished them off. And this is a very savage time period. This is a very savage war. I guess my point is we don't have to make stuff up. There were a lot of really terrible things going on, and we don't have to make any of that up. And all of this stuff that Tavington is seen doing in the movie, there is no basis in historical fact whatsoever, and it's not even close. And so probably like – if, if, I, I can sort of see the filmmakers saying, okay, well, we have this guy Tavington, and he's, I guess he's like Bannister Charlton. Okay, what's the terrible stuff that Bannister Charlton did? So, as I mentioned before, there's one battle. Bannister Charlton was in command of British troops. The Patriots on the other side were attempting to surrender, and probably out of more confusion than anything else, the British soldiers didn't accept the surrender and they murdered. They killed some of the Patriot soldiers who were trying to surrender. And so that was spun into, you know, you know how, how things how things take off like that. Right. That's what we that's what we can link to Tarleton. And it probably wasn't enough for the Hollywood screenwriters. And so they they had to do that. And I guess like in movies, you you have to have a bad guy. And I guess you have to make them really evil. But that that stuff just just really bothered me. I don't. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's the stuff that uh, you, you know. Just why do you? Why do you have to make that stuff up? Well, I, I've always said, Doctor Carpen, that if Bannister Tarleton was alive today, he could maybe sue the Hollywood Film Company for defamation. Oh my goodness character. gracious! <laughs> I, you know, which has happened as of recently. There was a, I forget the name of it, but there was a uh, a sports movie that came out in the UK about a soccer team during the 1970s, where one of the characters did successfully sue the film company wow. because they made him out to be this the, as dumb as a box of rocks. And he said, I'm not that by any stretch of the imagination. You guys really slime me right there. And so, uh, yeah, so a settlement was, a settlement was, was, was reached. Yeah. It, it's just, it is absolutely, you know, um, is, is Tarleton the best field commander? Probably not. And his loss at the Battle of Calpens is probably due to lack of judgment on his part. But is he that bloodthirsty evil guy? No, he's not even by any any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, um, so that that's the first character that if you think that this is how, even in a very savage war like the American Revolution, if you think this is how the British conducted themselves, you've got a major issue. All right, so let's get to the Mel Gibson character. Let's get to Benjamin Martin. Okay. Well, Dr. Um, Carpenter, you know, we're up against the time, so I think that's a probably appropriate place to stop. Okay. So you can pick it up with this character played by Mel Gibson in our next episode. And I want to end this with, with – I love what you said a few minutes ago when you said, and I'm going to quote you, we don't have to make this stuff up. The American <laughs> yeah, Revolution yeah. is an incredible story in fact and in truth. And yes. we both wish that Hollywood would, you know, write these stories and, and make these movies with the truth because 
the incredible story is there without having to make all these things up. Yeah. So I, I I don't think that's too much to ask, but no, I, I agree. Again, I'm I'm not I'm not running a Hollywood film studio, so <laughs> what do I know? Well, listeners, we want to thank Dr. Carpin. We're going to continue with Dr. Carpin in our next show. So, Dr. Carpin, thank you for sharing with us the beginning of your thoughts about The Patriot, and we look forward to you coming and sharing with us on the next show. Looking forward to it, Arch. So this is WFYL, 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty.